Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 12. I'm Owen Bader in Ethiopia. Development isn't just about aid, so today's Development Drums focuses on international law. I'll be talking to the authors of the successful blog, Wronging Rights. So if you've never really understood the difference between the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice, this episode is for you. We'll also be talking about the pros and cons of the arrest warrant that's been issued for President al-Bashir of Sudan. But before we get on to that, I'd like to make an appeal for anyone out there listening to Development Drums. It would be really good to have some feedback about the podcast. What do you like and what don't you like? Is it too long? Is it too short? Is it too technical or is it too simple? What issues would you like to hear discussed in the future? And are there any particular guests that you'd like me to invite on the show? Your feedback will help me to improve the podcast and make it more interesting and useful. So please go to developmentdrums.org and leave your comments there. Or you can join our new Facebook group. You can find that by searching Development Drums in Facebook. Many thanks to the people on Facebook who've already given me suggestions for questions for the next episode, which is going to be about philanthrocapitalism. So please take a few minutes to visit the website or visit the Facebook group and let me know what you think. One of the themes that's emerged in recent editions of Development Drums has been that development policy is about much more than aid. And Paul Collier talked in episode 10 about the need for the international community to provide standards of governance and to ensure security for countries too small or poor to provide security for themselves. And in the last episode, in episode 11, Simon Maxwell and Nancy Birdsall both talked about the need for more effective global institutions that would protect the interests both of poor nations and the citizens of those countries. And Nancy Birdsell talked at last week's Poverty Summit in London about the need for a global polity to underpin these institutions. So in this edition of Development Drums, we're going to focus on one particular aspect of international institutions, and that's international criminal law. We'll be looking at the work of the International Criminal Court and particularly at the indictment by the ICC of the Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir, and the future of international law more generally. I'm joined today by Amanda Taub and Kate Cronin-Furman, who are lawyers with an interest in international human rights. And you may know them because they blog at Wronging Rights. And if you've never visited Wronging Rights, I suggest you press pause right now on the podcast <laughs> and go take a look. And you'll, fi- you'll find it at wrongingrights.blogspot.com. It's, it's passionate, well-informed, topical, and most surprisingly, it's funny. And it's quite unusual to be funny about genocide and human rights abuses and stuff like that. So uh, let me introduce you in turn. Kate, uh, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you so much for having us. Now, uh, did I read somewhere on your blog that you have a BA in genocide? Um, I do, in fact, have a BA in genocide. Does that mean that having a BA being against genocide or how to do it or what what is (laughs) genocide (laughs) yes it's it's really a how-to degree um i have a degree from new york university's gallatin school of individualized study and you're allowed to study pretty much whatever you like uh so my my work was in sort of a kind of 
historical overview of genocide. And now you're working at the International Court of Justice, is that right? Yes, which is not the ICC, Okay. as it turns out. I'm going to ask you to explain that in a second, but first let's introduce Absolutely. Amanda. A big welcome to you too. Hello. Now, you were educated, I think I saw, in British universities. Yes, for a little while at least. Uh, um, I did my undergrad degree at Edinburgh University in Scotland and then a master's at SOAS at the um, University of London. And you're now a hotshot lawyer in New York City. That's the idea. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm a lawyer, at least. <laughs> and But you've both, you've both got passports and you've worked outside the United States. Uh, Amanda, you worked in Ecuador, is that right? And uh, I, yeah, I did a, some work with Colombian refugees, so in Ecuador and also Costa Rica. Oh, cool. And Kate, you worked in Cambodia? Yes, I was in Cambodia monitoring the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Oh, cool. About two years ago. And you said that when you grow up, you want to be human rights action figures. Yeah, we think, uh, you know, with some cool outfits, <laughs> that could be a pretty good gig. Definitely. Now, let, so let's talk about the International Criminal Court. Um, and some of the people who listen to this podcast are kind of developed economists rather than international lawyers. And of may not have been paying attention when all this was set up. So who set it up and when? <laughs> explain, explain the background. Okay, so the International Criminal Court is a permanent war crimes tribunal in The Hague that's set up to prosecute individuals um, for a very short list of crimes against international law, um, which are genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crime of aggression. Um, and it's only been around since 2002, and they're only right now in the process of having the first trial, which is uh, Thomas Lubanga, a warlord from the Congo. Were they the people who were prosecuting Milosevic until he died? No, that was the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. And what's that? What's the relationship um, between these? Because there's there's an International Criminal Tribunal for Sierra, Sierra Leone, isn't there? And what's the relationship between those tribunals and the ICC? That is kind of the million dollar question because there's a number of ad hoc tribunals, such as Sierra Leone Tribunal that you mentioned, the Tribunal for Rwanda, the one that's operating in Cambodia now, um, in addition to this permanent court in The Hague. And international law at this point is non-hierarchical. So basically, you've just got all of these courts operating... Um, you know, within their respective jurisdictions. So who sets up things like the Special Court for Sierra Leone or the Special Tribunal for Lebanon or the Khmer Rouge Tribunal? Who, I mean, who, where do they come from? Are they nationally created? By they, it depends. Um, the Sierra Leone and Cambodian tribunals are hybrid courts, so they are kind of partially situated within the country's domestic system and partially UN-operated. Right versus the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia, which were set up wholly by the UN um, under a Security Council mandate. So all these, um, uh, all these different uh, tribunals and special courts have all got some kind of blessing from a Security Council? Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, and, and uh, Kate, you work at the International Court of Justice. 
So I do. what's the difference between the, what, where does that fit in all this? The International Court of Justice is the court where states sue each other. It has no jurisdiction over individuals accused of crimes. Um, it's where states go to sue over treaty violations, um, you know, invasions. Okay. Basically, it's, right. it's, it's the court of the United Nations system. It's the successor court to the Permanent Court of International Justice, which was part of the League of Nations. It's been around for a while. and If you lose a case at the ICJ, you're a nation. What, what did you get fined or did you get invaded or what? Have... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, states have agreed to ICJ um, jurisdiction. So it's in treaty clauses that a disagreement over, um, you know, something arising out of the treaty will be referred to the ICJ. So they show up, the ICJ settles the dispute, and whatever... And the, con the country then implements whatever they're told to do. Most countries have some sort of system within their domestic law for how they will implement the decisions of treaty bodies that they're a part of. So, I mean... The U.S. currently has the rules within its domestic law of we're not going to do it very much. Um, but usually there's some system that people know about ahead of time. Okay, for, for implementing an ICJ decision. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's move in that direction by talking about the ICC. This is the court, as you said, set up in 2002, and yep. which the United States has not ratified. Is that right? Is that... Is this the organization that the ICC has not signed up to because they're worried that Americans might get prosecuted by it? Um, Correct. Y yes, we are not members. Yeah, we Correctly. signed the treaty, didn't ratify it, and then Bush said he unsigned it. I didn't, I didn't know you could unsign treaties. And Sudan, relevantly, <laughs> is also not a signatory. Correct. Okay, but and and is there is there a long list of of countries that are, is this a is this one of those lists like people who who uh, uh, do a lot of capital punishment of of a list you wouldn't yeah. want to be on like the United States and Iran and Sudan and China and Russia are also on this list. Okay, okay, so this is kind of uh, this is kind of a European conspiracy. The ICC is that right? Um, it's European and a large part of the developing world as well. Okay. I mean, how does it have jurisdiction? What, what, how does it, I mean, is this just a group of people who set themselves up and call themselves a court? Or is it, is it <laughs> from, you know, does it come from the United Nations? Or how does it, where does it get its legitimacy from? Well, at its basis, there's a treaty. So it gets its legitimacy from the fact that the countries that are members of this treaty have signed up for it. Um, and you can sign up to that sort of agreement under international law, and then the treaty will have force. Um, and then its secondary source of authority is the UN Security Council. Okay, and, um, and so although the US hasn't ratified the treaty, and has indeed mm -hmm. unsigned it, 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 it didn't <laughs> veto a Security Council resolution approving the ICC. Well, the, the US was very involved in the drafting of the Rome Statute, which is the treaty that kind of instantiates the International Criminal Court. So initially, the U.S. was quite on board um, and was very involved in the creation of the court. Okay. And do we think that the Obama administration might take a different view on this than the Bush administration? They might, but I probably wouldn't hold your breath. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't count on it either. Okay. So 
probably no change here. And Amanda, you've written somewhere that a problem with this court is that it's um, skimming skimming criminal law off the top of what ought to be a, a kind of deeper system of um, you know of justice. And that explain what you what you meant by that and what the what the problem is. Well, this goes to some more complicated issues that I think we'll probably um, get into in more detail. But basically, I think the issue with the ICC that hasn't gotten very much attention is we are expecting the court to do what is usually the work of an entire criminal justice system. So usually, um, criminal justice systems are the sort of tip of what I described as a very large pyramid where um, Underlying them, you have everything from social norms to a strong system of policing and community protection to um, other civil courts and prosecutors and investigations and all kinds of things. And the ICC just doesn't have the benefit of most of that and so is sort of unmoored. And people are expecting it to do all of these amazing things like put an end to ongoing atrocities that it has essentially very little capacity to do. Okay. Um, and so that the point I was trying to make there is that, you know, it, it's just not really going to happen. Okay. So let, uh, and I mean, you wrote that, I think, in the context of, of the president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir. Let's, let's follow yeah. through what happened in this case so that we can, we can see your point in a, in a practical example. So al-Bashir was indicted by the ICC for war crimes and crimes against humanity on March the 4th this year. So let's, let's start by looking at what, what's the process that, that got us to this point? Who, who decided to look into al-Bashir in the first place? Who, what, what kind of evidence is needed for the court to issue an indictment? Who decide, how does it work? So there are a couple of ways that an issue can get to the ICC. Um, one way is that the country itself can refer um, a conflict, you know, on the uh, on the suspicion that there's crimes under the ICC's jurisdiction occurring, they can kick it over to the prosecutor's office to investigate. Sudan is not a member state of the ICC, so that's not what happened here. Um, what happened was that this came from the Security Council, um, which has the power to refer conflicts to the prosecutor's office as well. Um, so the prosecutor began an investigation. Uh, determined that he felt like there was evident enough evidence to issue an arrest warrant. Um, and so that goes to the judges. Um, and this is, I believe, I forget which pretrial chamber, but it goes to pretrial judges, and they decide whether or not to issue a warrant. So when, the, when you say the Security Council referred it, this is... The act, you know, this is the thing you see on the television with them all sitting around in the chair. This isn't a bit of bureaucracy Absolutely. in the UN. This is right. the members themselves passing a resolution, like a, a UN Security Council resolution, that Bashir is a bad man and ought to be looked into by, by the ICC. <laughs> is, is, that, is that roughly what happens? Yes. Uh, so they pass a, not that he's a bad man. I don't think those words came up, um, but they pass a resolution which refers it to the ICC and also directs other states um, to cooperate um, with the investigation in varying degrees, including Sudan. Um, and that resolution passed because the 
members of the Security Council that were not members of the ICC uh, essentially sat the vote out. And, and then what's the evidentiary hurdle? So we, so the, you said the prosecutor had decided that there was, a, as it were, a case to answer. This is on the balance of probability that, that there's a chance this guy's guilty? Or what is, it that, what is it that the prosecutor is, what's the question that the prosecutor is trying to answer? That's something that there's a little bit of debate yeah. about right now, actually. Um, the, my reading of the law says that they really just have to have, you know, some evidence so that there's a credible case. But on the genocide charge, they essentially held the prosecutor to a higher standard, said that they needed, you know, a substantial enough weight of evidence to show essentially that it was more likely than not that um, genocide had taken place and Bashir had been responsible for it. And so they're currently appealing that issue and it's not clear what's going to happen. Yeah, just to clarify, the, the language is that they need reasonable grounds to believe that the crimes are occurring. And there's now, as Amanda just mentioned, quite a bit of debate about what that actually means in terms of a legal standard. And when the, when we say the prosecutor's decided there's enough evidence, I mean, what's he has he done a Google search on this guy, or has he got a, an army of policemen who go out and collect evidence, or what? Well, what's the process by which he does this? Something in between those two. <laughs> um, they have investigators, um, you know, affiliated with the office of the prosecutor, and basically they do a Google search. You know, they, they do the Google search. One of them, you know, shows up to the Darfur and <laughs> asks around, hey, anybody been genocided lately? Okay, okay. So we've got this arrest warrant being issued. And um, the consequence of that is that if... Uh, the, who now has an obligation to do something? Does it, this means that all the members of the ICC, the, the signatories of the Rome Statute, or not the signatories, those who have ratified their own statute, have an obligation to arrest this guy if he shows up on their soil. <laughs> That's where it gets tricky. <laughs> okay, explain. What's, what's going on? So the Rome statute itself actually has what is essentially an exception for the enforcement of warrants against people entitled to immunity under international law. So that includes heads of state, which Bashir currently is. Because under international law, if one country arrests another country's head of state or another person entitled to official immunity as a part of that government, then it's an offense against the country who sent the diplomatic official. So in this case, Sudan. Um, and so where that gets tricky is that the warrant has been issued and countries um, are required to enforce the warrant except that if it would be a violation of international law, then they first have to get permission from the country that has sent <laughs> the head of or diplomat. That might be quite hard. Case, Sudan. Right. Yeah. So essentially, they would have to, you know, knock on Bashir's hotel room door, say, "Hello, we've got this warrant. Would you please Can give us permission you? to arrest you?" And he'll say no, and they'll say, "How about now?" And he'll say, "Still no." Okay. And then go home. And that's the end of that. And, and so, what you're saying is this to make sure I understand this right, is that not only do they do, do countries not have an obligation to arrest him, they have an obligation not to arrest him because he's a serving head of state. Well, it's kind of more that they have an obligation to arrest him and they have an not to arrest him. Okay. <laughs> so if he showed up in, um, uh, say, the Netherlands tomorrow, 
what what would the Netherlands government do? Would they arrest him or not? Well, the tricky thing is there is there are essentially there are more than one way that somebody can end up in the Hague. So yes. the first one is that there is the actual warrant. They get arrested on the actual warrant and then get surrendered officially through the official ICC processes. That can't really happen because not only can they not arrest a sitting head of state validly under the warrant, another element of the Rome Statute requires that as soon as somebody is arrested under an ICC warrant, they immediately have to be brought before a court, a national court, where they can challenge their detention um, and challenge whether you know their rights were violated during the arrest right. um, and other similar things like that. So it would be pretty unlikely that 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 an arrest under the ICC warrant could survive that challenge because he's got a pretty good defense in that it's not really valid unless Sudan has given permission. Right. But then the, the other thing that could happen is that the uh, he could be arrested under a different law, <laughs> a national <laughs> statute, for instance, um, giving na uh, you know domestic jurisdiction over um, international crimes, which several European countries do have. Including and that's Belgium, where it gets a little more tricky. Okay. Right. <laughs> that's where it gets a little bit more tricky because it's not really clear what would happen if he was arrested under a statute like that and then surrendered to the, surrendered to the ICC. Because once he actually gets there, the ICC doesn't have to end the prosecution because of his head of state immunity. Uh, it, it seems fairly unlikely that he's going to be arrested anytime soon and and does that come to, let, let's come to the question of whether this was even a good idea to uh, issue a uh, a warrant for his arrest in the first place there's been a lot of chatter on the internet about this there's been people <laughs> like Nicholas Christoph in the New York Times saying this is good this is the beginning of the end of impunity for for um, homicidal leaders and that's good and then there have been a bunch of people, I suppose Alex Duval, who is a, a long-time Sudan expert uh, at Harvard, saying actually this is catastrophically bad uh, because it means that um, it will leave the people of Darfur without um, without support. And um, the this is kind of grandstanding by the ECC, right. the ICC. Now, I think, yeah. Amanda, you wrote a piece on the Wronging Rights blog, uh, saying that that um, you were seriously unimpressed by this. Yes. Is that still your view? Um, it is still my view. Um, I think that this was not a good idea because of all of the reasons that we essentially knew it wouldn't be. You know, we knew that um, Bashir was going to retaliate against the people of Darfur. We knew exactly the way in which they were vulnerable, which is that they're extremely reliant on humanitarian aid. Um, and we knew that that would give him a great deal of leverage when it came to retribution against them. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, he's kicked out, you know, 13 international aid agencies and shut down three Sudanese ones. Um, and there is the already serious humanitarian distress there and the potential for an absolutely huge disaster. Okay, so so one point is that bad things will happen. That this will this will um, lead to the people of Darfur not getting the kind of humanitarian support that they desperately need. Um, there's also people have said, well, you know, if he goes, actually his successor is going to be just as bad. 
but the people around him are, uh, are unpleasant characters. So it won't do any good to it, even if he was hauled off to court, it wouldn't do any good. What? Well, that's something that are those the main re- are those the main that's the main case against the arrest warrant, is it? Well, I'm not sure that second point is a case against the arrest warrant at all. Okay. Um, I mean, just because it may be true that the next person who takes power will also commit war crimes doesn't mean that Bashir should be let off the hook for the crimes he's committed. Right. Like, but you think you I, think I, that just because he'll do very bad and wicked things to the people of Darfur, that does mean that he should be let off the hook? Well, I, I would backtrack for just a second. The, so on the issue of if he goes, his place will be filled by somebody who is sort of also a bad person. I think that what that that sort of brings up two issues. One is kind of what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. Um, you know, I certainly don't think that just because you can't do all of the good things doesn't mean you can do any of them. Um, and that goes for criminal prosecutions as much as anything else. You know, I think saying that we can't prosecute everyone isn't a good reason to say we can't prosecute anyone. But at the same time, if we're saying where this gets fuzzy is people saying, you know, this, we have to put a stop to impunity because that is somehow going to improve the situation in Darfur because we'll have taken a hard line and shown that this is unacceptable and that, you know, if you commit genocide, you're a pariah from the international community. I think that argument is seriously undermined if our best case scenario is that somebody who has been as much or more involved in the genocide is going to get to be president of Sudan. But but there is something in this argument about impunities. I mean, the, the, the uh, yeah, I'm kind of surprised to hear lawyers saying that we need to weigh up the utilitarian consequences of arresting someone and, and prosecuting them for a crime. I mean, we generally take the view that there are rules and the law should be allowed to take its course. It should be applied impartially and, and fairly. And that, and that we shouldn't say, well, you know, we shouldn't really prosecute someone because, you know, their family will suffer or something else. Some, you know, we, we tend to take the view that um, rules are rules and ought to be enforced. And, and I think the, the Christoph argument that I, I'm guessing would be, well, maybe bad things will happen in Darfur and that's deeply regrettable, but that will be the fault, fault of Bashir and his henchmen, not the fault of the criminal court. And living in a world where um, uh, genocidal or, or homicidal dictators reckon they might be punished for it would probably be a better thing than people feeling that they're going to get away with it. I mean, isn't, isn't there a case for applying the law anyway, even, even if bad things sure. Yeah, of course there is, but I think this gets back to Amanda's point about skimming the top off of criminal law, which is that it's a little bit disingenuous to say that this is fair and impartial and just, and so we just need to apply it, you know, uniformly across the board without any consideration of the consequences or of what's missing from the process. And I think also that's you bring up a really interesting point, which is kind of the perception of how criminal courts work um, in, you know, within domestic systems. And it's not as if we prosecute all of the crimes that happen in our domestic court system. There are everything from cases where we have insufficient evidence to go forward to cases where we've taken a plea bargain, allowed somebody to, you know, plead to very low charges or nothing at all in exchange for information against somebody more important. There are cases where, um, you know, the courts themselves often will 
be sort of squeamish about certain issues in certain cases. Um, you know, there's really a pretty broad spectrum of how things are handled. Um, I think, and I, I think, think part in the of UK, the, the, the director of public prosecutions has a, uh, a discretion to to say that it's actually just not in the public interest to prosecute someone. Sure. Is that right? Right. Is that true in the states uh, as well? That there's some. It is true in the states. Okay, so there is normally um, a, discre a discretion within a society to not apply the criminal law as it stands. That's what you're saying, right? And and is it, and uh, there isn't one in the ICC. They just decide. That's a matter of some debate. Their statute says that they don't have discretion; that they, if they have a case, they're supposed to go forward with it. Okay. But um, it's it's on the basis of sufficient gravity to proceed, and it's not totally clear what that means. But, so this is an example of the point you're making that the court is kind of disconnected from any kind of social structure below it, so any kind of polity that could could make a a decision on the interests of society about whether it's a good idea to prosecute or not. Right. And I think it's worth remembering that there were several decisions made here. It's not just, you know, if to prosecute. It's, there's also when, um, how. All of those yeah. things are discretionary decisions on some level. Um, and it's, I think it's not really reasonable to make it into this black and white binary decision between yes, now everything and no, never anything. And, uh, and on that point, the prosecutor has the option of releasing a sealed warrant rather than doing this public, you know, huge thing with, oh my God, we're going to end impunity by indicting a sitting head of state. Sorry, issuing a warrant for a sitting head of state. <laughs> so this is why people you know. say that the prosecutor is, is grandstanding. That's, I mean, because it, it seems like a kind of big political statement that we're ending it's a huge political statement it's yeah. a huge political statement and what's going on there this is, is this the court trying to assert itself in the international system is it the prosecutor what's the what's your take on on why this is happening well there's there's a very cynical view that the prosecutor may be trying to distract attention from some other issues currently occurring but like what They've been having some significant problems with their handling of an ongoing trial, um, the Lubanga trial. Um, essentially, the way they handled their evidence has made it more or less impossible to proceed with the trial as they had originally planned to. They had promised some of their the people who provided evidence that their identities would remain secret and that the evidence itself would not be directly provided to the defense, but that's not actually allowed within the context of the trial. And so it has hit roadblocks ah, many times. Okay, so it's, so that so one story is this may be to 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 divert attention from a bit of a cock up somewhere else. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean that trial eventually has you know started to go forward, but on the opening day of hearings, one of you know the the first witness recanted his testimony three hours after giving it. Okay. So that's. That's a poor showing for a court that everybody has been waiting for, you know, seven years to start trial. And you said earlier that this is the first and only trial now underway for, for the ICC itself. The, the Lubanga yeah, trial, the Lubanga which is trial. the one we were just right. discussing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, so that's, that's your take on, on Omar al-Bashir, that, that it was a mistake, that it's grandstanding, that the harm that will be done. And what do you think, that they should have issued a seal warrant or they should have come to it later when he leaves office or what's, what would you have done? There is a defensible position to be made that this is going to cause tremendous suffering um, and it's worth it anyway. 
Right. Um, I in this particular case, like I happen to not come down on that side. I think that this was a bad idea, even though as a general rule, like I'm committed to the idea of international criminal justice. I think that I'm not committed in a situation such as this one. I think it should have been done at a different time and in a different way. It, so in a sense, um, you're just saying the suffering is, is so great that although there are these kind of benefits to reducing impunity, that the, suffer, the, 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 we, the, the price being paid by the people of Darfur for that is, is too high in this case. But that's, well, I think that's not the kind of general of principle. It's just in this, in this particular weighing up of the pros and cons, it just seems that the cons are too big. I think that's part of it. I do think that the cons are too big, but I think there's also another issue going on in Darfur, which hasn't really been addressed with this particular case, which is that we're asking the ICC to do something here that is not really what it does. People are treating this as if it's going to be a somehow a kind of clean and easy way to put an end to the suffering in Darfur and sort of at one fell swoop bring in accountability and justice and change the incentives of the people who are involved in this um, conflict so that it ends and people are made safe and happy. And, you know, that's been the way that it's sort of presented in, in, in a lot of the debates over it. And I think that that is just not a reasonable way to do it. That's not what this court is for. Um, and it's, it's not work that it's designed to do. And it's not really work that it's able to do. Um, and so I think that that is also a big problem with this particular warrant, because it's not only a sitting head of state, it's a conflict that hasn't yet been resolved, to which Bashir is not the only party. Let's turn to um, the Lord's Resistance Army, because there's a parallel with that conflict. This is the conflict mm -hmm. in northern Uganda. Sure. Joseph Kony right. uh, is the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, and he too has an arrest warrant issued by the ICC. And it, the consensus seems to be that when, when the ICC first issued an arrest warrant against Kony, that he, um, that rather galvanized him to get stuck into a peace process. I mean, yeah, that seems to have, um, I was going to say, put the fear of God into it, but that's not the right phrase in this case. Um, and then when he realized that actually there was no way that he could get out of the warrant, it had the opposite effect, which is he disappeared back into the, uh, back away from the, the peace process. And it seems like it's now seen as an obstacle to the agreement. So, well, I mean, is this an example of where the ICC is, has got involved in a an existing unsettled conflict and um, and had an impact on the dynamics of it that's, that's perhaps not helpful? Well, I think, th you know, this is kind of the classic, like, peace versus justice issue. Um, you know, the people on the ground may just want to, like, get rid of Coney and are not too terribly concerned about, you know, who's facing trial for what, but meanwhile, the international community is saying it's important that he face trials, and, you know, if it's going to push him back into the bush for 10 years, then effectively, you know, fine, as long so, as yeah. we're not, yeah. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I think that that's also a good example of how an ICC warrant can fit within a kind of existing power struggle because, you know, the government of Uganda was very much in favor of this warrant when it was first issued because they saw it as something that was going to give them kind of added bargaining power um, and essentially have the international community on their side. And unfortunately, it's essentially had the opposite effect to the extent that they are now opposed to um a prosecution of him because and it's have really no power to get it 
Right. Um, Am I right in thinking that there is no way, once, once a warrant has been issued, there's no way to rescind it? There's no way to, to back away from that? There is a way to have it suspended for a year through the Security Council, but there is no way to get it wiped. Right. And so the government yeah. of Uganda basically is now taking the view that this is an obstacle to, some, uh, to a peace agreement with the Lord's Resistance Army, with the LRA. Correct. And the, and the ICC's reaction to that is, well, that's just tough. This guy is, yeah, there's evidence that this man has done bad things and therefore he should stand trial. I, I mean, the, re- the reaction is, we've issued a warrant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, right. end of story. So, I mean, right. uh, there is a general feeling, isn't there, uh, particularly in Africa, and we saw this at the Africa Union Summit, that the ICC is is a kind of European invention and a bit of European interventionism that's focusing particularly on Africans and, and, and is intervening in, kind of in various unhelpful ways in conflicts and making it harder to reach peaceful resolution um, of them. Is that, is that fair? There is that, but there's also a concern that certain governments in Africa are able to manipulate the ICC for domestic political benefit also. So that's the, that's so, the Uganda example, is it? Well, no, I, I would say that that's an example from the Congo where, um, you know, Joseph Kabila has had a lot of luck at getting rid of political opponents by referring cases to the ICC and then, you know, an arrest warrant appears for Bemba, who's Kabila's major rival, and suddenly Bemba's off at the Hague and not running for election again. Okay, so so part of the worry, uh, 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 part of the worry is that that if you're in, it's a kind of victor's justice that if you're the winner, if if if, if you're in power, you get to decide who to refer. Yes, I mean, I think yeah, part of the frustration for people is that it's not even victor's justice; it's sort of nominal heads of state's justice. And, and, you know, there's a really obvious practical reason for that, which is that, you know, the ICC can do its job a lot better if the sitting government is not obstructing its investigation. But also, presumably, because to get nations to sign up to something like the ICC, there needs to be some uh, acknowledgement of the of the power and rights of, of the national government, that if, uh, it would be hard to get agreement to it without that kind of protection. Right. What about the the notion that this is too focused on Africa? That uh, you know, is there any chance that uh, George W. Bush will be prosecuted, or that, um, or the Burmese hunter, or what kind of people? Why is why hasn't Robert Mugabe been indicted? Or you know, what I don't understand what what decides who's up in front of it and who isn't. Well, again, it, it has jurisdiction over a very narrow number of crimes, so it's. You know, it's genocide, it's crimes against humanity, it's war crimes, and it's aggression. It would be pretty difficult to fit Mugabe's actions into any of the categories. For Bush, while there may well be a case for war crimes or possibly even crimes against humanity, the U.S. is, again, not a state party, so it's not going to get there that way. And the U.S. has a veto power in the Security Council, it's pretty unlikely they pro- that... They probably wouldn't sit that one out, you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking Susan Rice is not going to leave the room <laughs> while they're debating that. <laughs> okay, so, but but then there is a sense, isn't there, that this is, the, the, I mean, that's quite a lot of 
political interference in the process of of, of justice. I mean, you know, the, isn't it? I mean, that feels it feels like there's that that people might be right to think that this is that only particular kinds of case are coming up to the ICC and that the big powerful states who's represented on the Security Council uh, get to be protected from it. Well, if they're not, if they're not members of the ICC, um, you know, if you, if they are, then they don't have the same Security Council protection. Okay, so Tony, so uh, Tony Blair could be prosecuted because Britain's a member of the ICC. Yeah, and actually there, there was a British case under investigation by the prosecutor's office. He ultimately declined to proceed with the case, but but certainly, you know, that was referred there. Okay, so that's not impossible at some point. Your point that, that's been underlying all this... Oh, sorry, sure. I just have one sure. more point to make on the last issue, which is there's one other way that cases can be prevented from reaching the ICC, which is if the um, person has already been tried in a domestic court for the crime. Oh. Um, so the ICC won't retry them at that point. Okay. And so that is something else that hasn't become too much of an issue so far, but... If in the instance that, you know, Tony Blair, say, were somehow to be referred, if Great Britain ended up trying him for the crimes that he was accused of, then that would most likely, that would mean he wouldn't you know, go to the ICC. barring procedural irregularities or right. something like that, a sort of obviously fake trial, then yeah. that would also divest the ICC of jurisdiction. And Sudan has tried really hard to do that with a number of their potential indictees. But in a way, that's a good like, thing, right? If, if, if it provokes Sudan into having domestic mm -hmm. legal... I mean, that's, that's a success. Well, it's right? a good thing if they're real. <laughs> but, but if they're kangaroo courts, that's not really doing anyone much good. Right, not so good. Okay. <laughs> a, a theme here is this idea that the court needs to be better situated as part of a more comprehensive system of justice. Um, uh, so you're, uh, and from what I'm here, you're hearing you say is that it's good that there's some kind of international criminal, you know, you guys are international criminal lawyers, you, you believe in this stuff, but you want it to be more linked in it. I mean, doesn't that require some kind of global policy making, some kind of global polity uh, uh, that enables this court to be part of? I mean, are we talking about an international police force and, inter in, in, you know, lower level international courts? Are we courts that try other kinds of criminal law? What, what is it that you, how is it you think this, what is it this court should be linked into, in your view? Well, I think that on that particular issue, part of the problem is that it, in some of the places it's acting, you know, war zones that have been war zones for years and years and years, there's not only not an international polity and system of police and all of that, there isn't much of a national one either. And so to be operating in an, in so much of an, official vacuum of that sort of institution um, is really difficult and is a hurdle that people haven't really addressed much or given the ICC kind of credit or criticism for having to deal with. But it's not your, but it's um, not your position, is it, that in those circumstances you just can't do international criminal law? Well, perhaps it is, yeah. Is that your view? Perhaps, it, you know, you're saying it's so, it's so bad that you can't do it there. My view of those circumstances is that we should seriously consider what we're trying to get out of these courts and I, on a case-by-case -case basis, but it's true that for me personally, most of those cases come down in the no column at the moment um, because I think part of it is we have this idea in, you know, those of us who come from countries where courts are stable and developed and have been around for a long time and we know what they do, we have this idea that they are particularly sort of legitimate, neutral arbiters of justice. 
And I'm not sure that it's good for the ICC itself to be operating in cases where it's impossible to do that, in cases where it's having to sort of, you know, cut corners in ways that are fundamentally illegitimate and that will cause problems. I mean, we've seen that with the Lubanga trial. It just isn't really working institutionally for the court, much less for any of the ideals that it's supposed to be upholding. Um, and I think that that's something as well that is feeding into that issue that you mentioned of people finding it illegitimate that this is looking like a court used by Europeans against Africans. There's this sort of underlying issue there of we think courts are neutral. And in many of the cases that these are, that are being investigated or tried right now, the countries involved, courts are not neutral. Courts are, you know, tools of the government or corrupt or something like that. And I don't, you know, I think for people there, this isn't seen as some sort of wonderful international clean, just thing. Um, Amanda Taub, Kate Cronin-Furman, both bloggers at uh, wrongingrights.blogspot.com. Go check it out. Thanks very much for taking us through the intricacies of international law. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. We